0: If you have a Bible, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to be at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. In fact, we'll go through most of chapter 12 this morning. We are going to be wrapping up our study of the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, talking a bit this morning about death and life. And I was thinking this week about one of my first encounters with death happened when I was uh, about two or three years old. We had a dog. His name was Noah. And uh, I don't remember Noah very well. I know that he was some kind of a German shepherd type of dog, very large dog. Uh, But over a period of a few weeks and months, uh, he became aggressive. Noah became a dog that would hide in the bushes when friends came over and growl and snap and try to bite little kids who came over, and my dad became increasingly concerned about Noah, and uh, the final straw for him was uh, one day I was playing in the backyard. Now remember, this was the 1970s where you would let a toddler play unsupervised in the backyard with a vicious dog, right? So uh, I am in the backyard playing with this dog, and my dad looks out, and Noah had grabbed me by the shirt and was dragging me around the backyard. Uh, My dad looked out and thought, that is the end for this dog, and so he took him away. At the time, he told me and my brother that Noah had gone to a farm where he would be happier. It was not until we were in high school that we learned Noah purchased the farm, actually. He bought the farm. That was what my dad meant to say, but could not quite bring himself to admit to us that he had put Noah to sleep because of his aggression. Now, I didn't understand why he would lie to us about the death of that animal until many, many years later when I had my own kids and we had to put an animal to sleep and I found myself wrestling with that same temptation. Uh, Do I open them up to the reality of death or do I try to hide it? Uh, And ultimately they learned about the death of this animal and like when I was a kid, it's a hard pill to swallow. We don't like to talk about death. It's the type of thing that we prefer to keep shut away, hidden behind closed doors, and yet it really is a shadow that hangs over our lives. It's very hard even when we experience the death of an animal. It's a thousand times more difficult when we face the loss of a loved one or a family member or a friend. And what's hard is that the shadow of death uh, hangs over all of us. And so all of us, uh, if we live long enough, will eventually sit at the funerals of our grandparents, our parents, our spouses, and others in our life. And as we sit at those funerals, uh, we ponder the question of why, but we also look ahead and we say, uh, unless Jesus comes first, all of us are destined for this. All of us are destined for death. One of my favorite novels is the children's novel, novel Charlotte's Web. It's a great story about an unlikely friendship between a pig named Wilbur and a spider named Charlotte. And if you remember the story, Charlotte, the spider, out of the kindness of her heart, decides to save Wilbur, to save his life. And so most of the book is about Charlotte's endeavor to save Wilbur from the slaughterhouse. Right? And, and she succeeds, but toward the second half of the book, uh, the reader begins to realize that Charlotte is going to die. That the exertion of all of her efforts to save Wilbur combined with the reality that after they bear babies after they lay eggs spiders usually die those things combined together so that the last half of the book you are increasingly aware that charlotte is going to die and so the shadow of her death hangs over the last half of that book and when her death arrives it's expected but it's still painful Every time I read the book, when I've read it with my kids, when I watch the movie, when I even think about the end of that book, often I begin to tear up, right? And I have to pretend to my kids that I have allergies or something else is wrong, right? Why are you crying about the death of a spider? Because in a broader sense, we are all aware that death hangs over our lives like that type of shadow. And even when it's expected it still hurts. Because we know this is not the way the world was designed to be. Now, as we began the book of Ecclesiastes, we pointed out that that was one of the major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's problem is what is the significance of anything that you and I accomplish If we all are going to die, what is the point of all of our ambitions, all of our riches, all of our relationships, if we are all eventually destined for the grave and destined to be forgotten? So that as we've walked through the book, we have found this primary theme that nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. And the reason, ultimately, is because if we place our hope in anything on this earth, it will ultimately let us down because when we die, nobody will remember our accomplishments. Nobody will remember our fame if we achieve it. Our money will go to others. All of those things that we are tempted under the sun to place our hope in will fade away so that nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance, and so idol after idol after idol will topple because of the shadow of death. If there is no hope beyond death, then nothing matters. And Solomon struggled because he did not know everything that you and I now know. Solomon did not yet know of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that that promises to all who trust in him. He did not yet understand or know about the coming kingdom of God in which, as Chris read a few minutes ago, there would be a new heavens and a new earth free of vanity. Remember one of the key themes in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity, or we talked about that word hevel. It meaningless. Everything is vain. The harder we work to produce meaning in this life, the more it disappoints us. And Solomon did not understand the coming kingdom without death, without tears, without vanity. And so he didn't know what we're going to talk about this morning, ultimately, and that is this. Only God can satisfy our need for lasting significance. He knew it in a broad sense, but he did not know the particulars of how God provides us with lasting significance. Here's what we'll see as we close out Ecclesiastes this morning. That when you and I try to write our own story, it ultimately will be meaningless. But lasting significance comes when you and I live out the story God is writing. When you and I connect ourselves to the story God is writing, so that all of our work, all of our relationships, all of our ambitions ultimately point to the character of God and the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, then no longer do I or you have to worry about whether I am remembered for the things I do, but instead I think about how does my life tell a bigger story? And so if my life tells the story of God, then it has meaning and significance because it is part of the grander plan and story that God is writing in history. And I get to be a part of that not only now, but forever to proclaim the truth that Jesus has risen and God's kingdom is coming and all who connect to him can be a part of that story so that only God can satisfy our need for lasting significance. And what we want to do is connect our story to his to find significance. And so Solomon wrestles with this problem. What is meaning beyond the grave. So we're going to look at that this morning from Ecclesiastes 11 and 12, and then we're going to move out. Uh, We're going to say this is beyond the sun, above the sun. We're going to move out and see what the rest of scripture has to say about how we connect our story to God's. But we got to start with the problem that Solomon sees, which is this. As I mentioned, we live in death's shadow. Let me share with you a couple of passages throughout the book. Ecclesiastes chapter three, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? See, Solomon doesn't even have confidence in the reality of life after death. He looks at his world and he says, under the sun, what I see is animals die and people die. We all go to the same place. In Ecclesiastes chapter nine, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. It's a deeply cynical Perspective, often, that Solomon takes on life because of the reality of death. And he recognizes all his money, all his power, all his pleasure, all his wisdom cannot push away death. I was reading this week that there are certain uh, rich men and women, billionaires in our nation and in our world, who are spending their money to try to overcome death. Larry Ellison, the uh, founder of Oracle the huge software company, said this, death makes me very angry. Right, join the club. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish, just not be there? So he's spending millions of dollars to research technology that he believes will overcome death. Uh, The futurist and technologist Ray Kurzweil uh, believes that he will be able to fund a biotechnology revolution where our bodies will be merged with the bodies of nanorobots and we will live forever. That's his plan. And the sad news is that apart from connecting our story to the story of God, we will cling to those types of false hopes because death cannot be overcome by technology or by power or by money. It affects us all. And Solomon recognized that. And so in the course of his book, he will say, always keep an eye on the reality of death because the reality of death casts a shadow over all your earthly ambitions. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 11 now. I'm gonna spend some extended time on the end of chapter 11, starting in verse seven and then into chapter 12. Eleven seven, he says, the light is pleasant It is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Here's what he's saying. If you woke up this morning and you saw the light coming in your window, say a prayer of thanks to God that you are alive. It's good for the eyes to see the sun. And particularly, he says, young men and women, rejoice in your youth. Enjoy your youth. Recognize that there are things you can do when you are young that you will not be able to do when you are old. And the day of death is coming for us all. I'm going to turn 40 just in a couple of months. To some of you, that feels very young. To others of you, that feels horribly old to think about it. Uh, But I've started to get these questions about being over the hill. What does it feel like to be approaching the top of the hill, right? Where everything will hereafter be downhill, right? And the imagery I imagine is I'm running down the street and the grim reaper is chasing me and he's gaining on me with every passing day, right? And I will one day... Hit the ranks of the dead like everybody else and 40 is just the beginning of that process but here's how i always respond to those queries how does it feel to be getting older and i always say it is better than the alternative you're either getting older or you're dead there is no middle ground so getting older is better than the alternative and solomon says every day that you wake up and you see the sun you say a prayer of thanks to your creator that you are still alive Because the dark days are coming. And then what he does in chapter 12 is he takes us on a journey through aging and death. A vivid word picture that is probably my favorite series of metaphors in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. We'll come back to that uh, phrase in a few minutes. Before the evil days come... And the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In other words, the day is coming when you and I will no longer see the sun. The sky will go dark. So remember your Creator while you're young. He says, verse 3. Uh, Remember them before that day that the watchmen of the house tremble. Here is where Solomon begins to describe the aging process. Some of you are thinking, I don't need a description, right? I'm living it. But he says, the watchmen of the house tremble. That is probably a reference to the arms and hands. As one grows older, they begin to tremble. You cannot pick things up as steadily as you once did. That fork does not come as smoothly to your mouth when you write... It is shakier and shakier. The watchmen tremble. The mighty men stoop. That is probably the legs begin to stoop, and your posture begins to bend over. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. You know what that is. Uh, The teeth. There are not many left, right? And so they just kind of decide, we're done. Uh, They give up on working, and you just decide, I will eat soft foods. Remember, Solomon lived in a day before dentures and dentists and those types of things, and so most people, by the time they were 50-ish, had very few teeth left. And so he says, the grinding ones just don't do a whole lot of work anymore, because there aren't many of them left. If you are young, give thanks to God for your teeth, brush them, floss them, (laughs) care for them, Get them to last as long as you can. But he says the day is coming when they will one by one abandon your face and their work is done. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. Those who look through the windows grow dim. That is the eyes. The eyes cannot see as well. And again, before I care... Your eyes would get worse and worse. Cataracts would blind you. There was no way to remove them. Even in our day, we recognize that as we grow older, our vision changes. Young men and women, you have probably seen your parents pick up a paper or a book and go like this. Right? And they begin to move it farther and farther away until the day that they recognize they either need longer arms or reading glasses. Right? And so they put those reading glasses on And they up the prescription every couple of years so that they can see. As we grow older, we need more and more light to read by. We watch our children read in the dark and say, how can they possibly see the words on the page? Until the only way we can read is to stand in the blinding glare of the noonday sun, right? (laughs) With our reading glasses on our face and the font at 42 point on our screens, right? Right? The windows grow dim as we get older, a reminder that life is approaching its ending point. The doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. Probably a reference to the fact that when the teeth are no longer in the mouth, those lips turn inward and shut. And it's harder and harder to open that mouth, harder and harder to chew. Uh, One will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. As you grow older, uh, two things happen. Your hearing begins to fade away. It's harder to hear what your children or grandchildren are saying to you. And so somebody says, do you want to have chicken for dinner tonight? And you say, what? The lotto is picking a winner tonight? What? You can't understand. And yet, you also can't sleep. The slightest sound wakes you up. And so you can't hear your family talking, but you are forced to go to bed at four in the afternoon because you know you're going to wake up before dawn as soon as those birds begin to chirp and the hearing begins to fade away. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. You begin to recognize that heights could be a real danger. My six-year-old son, I've seen him leap off this stage over these three steps, onto the floor. Many of you in this room say, I would not do that on a bet because I would land in the ICU, right? And you begin to be afraid of high places. You begin to be afraid of going out because the outside world poses real danger to you. The almond tree blossoms. Uh, When an almond tree blossoms, all the flowers are white at the top. The crown of the head turns gray. A couple of years ago, my kids were coloring pictures. And I looked down and I asked my daughter, what do you have there? And it was our family. She said, there's me, there's Samuel, there's Abigail, there's mommy, and there's daddy. And as I looked, she had colored my head with a silver crayon. My head looked like sort of a chrome doorknob, right? It was round, and it was silver, and it was shiny. And I said, is that what I look like to you? And she said, yes. And I said, I still have some black hair left. And Shannon walked in and goes, a a little, right? Some. (laughs) Last time I got a haircut a couple of weeks ago, I looked down, and it was like just gray hair all over the front of that little smock they put on you. The black ones have just decided we're done, and they have fled the head. Right, the almond tree blossoms. Uh, the reality is, eventually, the almond tree blossoms or it all just goes away, right? As we age. The grasshopper drags himself along. Because you are stooped, because the arms begin to shake, your gait is slow. Like, a, think of a grasshopper walking along the ground. And the caperberry is ineffective. The caperberry was a commonly used aphrodisiac. The idea is sexual desire has fled and you probably just don't care anymore. And he says, this is where all of us are headed. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him, that is remember your creator, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern Is crushed. Imagine a oil lamp in a golden bowl. It is lit from the inside, hanging from a cord. That cord is snapped in half. The bowl falls to the ground, and the light goes out. Or a well that can no longer draw the source of life, which is the water we need to live. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. We can't stop time. There are a thousand movies and stories about going back in time, altering the past, extending our future because there's a deep desire in all of us to be able to manipulate time, to change the course of events. But Solomon says, you and I cannot. Death will find us all unless Jesus comes. And yet hidden Within this seemingly negative and depressing cycle, is some advice he gives that then resonates throughout the scripture and I think has an opportunity to transform the way we view life and death. Right? Because he's going to say that death, we live under death's shadow. If you guys can advance that, that'd be great. I think we've got a little bit of a stuck slide. There we go. We live in death's shadow. But the solution ultimately is to place your hope in God. He's going to say, remember your creator. Remember your creator in the day of your youth. Now, biblically, to remember something is actually to act upon that remembrance. In Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, when Noah is still in the ark and the waters are still high, it says God remembered Noah and he caused the waters to recede. In other words, God remembered and that remembrance led to God acting. In the book of Habakkuk chapter 3, the prophet says, God, remember your people and do what? Deliver us from the Babylonians. When God remembers his people, he acts. Conversely, when we remember God, to remember God is to act. Psalm 106 verse 7 says the Israelites did not remember God. So what did they do? They disobeyed. Psalm 119 verse 55 the psalmist says, I remember your name in the night and I keep your law. To remember God is to obey. And Solomon says, in your youth, here's what you do. Knowing that death is approaching, you set your course toward God and you remember that you are here to praise Him, to reflect Him, and to proclaim His kingdom. Because your story belongs to his story. And the danger as we go through life is to place our hope for significance and meaning in things that will not provide it. I don't know if you've ever been in your home and walked from one room to another and forgotten why You went to the second room. It's happened to everybody. You're sitting on the sofa and you have a mug of coffee and it is empty and you say, I need to go and refill it. And you walk into the kitchen and you say, why am I here? And you stand in the threshold of the kitchen, feeling like an idiot, holding a mug. Why do I have that? and you have no memory of why you're there. It happens to me at our house, because often my wife uh, will be sitting at her desk in the other room, and I will think, I need to tell her something, and I'll get up from the sofa and walk over to talk to her, and as soon as I walk into that room, I don't remember what I planned to say. And she says, why are you here? And I say, I don't know, (laughs) right? I had some purpose, but I don't know. And in fact, I read that walking through doors... Causes us to forget. They've actually done a study on this that walking through doorways triggers something in your brain to say, whatever I was thinking in that previous room, I don't need it anymore. And so you walk through the door and you forget. Now I thought, what a great metaphor for the way many of us walk through life. When we are young, we think we set our course to pursue and follow God, and yet we walk through various doors in our life. We walk through the door of adulthood and career and marriage and family, and hopefully uh, we find success or whatever we're looking for. And as we walk through each of these doors... What's on the other side of the door begins to take precedence over what we established earlier in our lives often that we desire to worship and serve God and so we just forget. And Solomon says, remember, remember your Creator. In the day of your youth, remember your Creator before the dark days come because it is in Him that you will find meaning and significance. So the editor at the very end of this book, who sums everything up in verses 13 to 14, he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God, keep his commandments, set your course and then act on that course throughout your life to say, my life is found in Him as I walk through every doorway of my life. It is found in Him. So Solomon will say, remember your Creator. But what Solomon didn't know yet, or fully understand, was also, remember the end of the story. Solomon didn't know that death is not the end. For those who are found in Jesus Christ, death is not the end. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means we never have to believe that life is all vanity and then we die because we know the end of the story. The book of Ecclesiastes is sort of like a cliffhanger. Solomon doesn't understand yet the full end of the story. Some of you may have watched the popular television show Lost that was out several years ago, a six-season show about a group of people lost on a mysterious island. And one of the things the makers of that show were very expert in was creating cliffhangers. Every season ended with a major cliffhanger. They would open a hatch, and you wouldn't find out until the fall what was in the hatch. They would explode a hydrogen bomb. And you had to wait until the next season to know what happened after the explosion of the hydrogen bomb. And every season there was some cliffhanger until the very end when you realized that none of it mattered at all. And the ending of the story was deeply disappointing. I've just saved you six years if you've never watched the show. But here's the good news. As we look at the scripture, the ending of the story is anything but disappointing. And Solomon didn't know that yet. But God promises that he will return and create a world without vanity, without death, without sin. And you and I are a part of that story. Look at Isaiah chapter 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, Or come to mind. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. They will not labor, look at this, in vain. Hevel or bear children for calamity. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. That the day is coming when vanity will be banished from God's earth. Earlier, Chris read Revelation chapter 21, and John goes back to Isaiah 65 when he talks about the coming new heavens and new earth, that heaven itself will descend to earth. And death itself will be abolished. There will be no more crying, no more tears, no more death, no more sin. And God says, behold, I am making all things brand new. So that death does not have the final word. That is why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we do not grieve as those without hope. Unless Jesus returns, all of us will lie in the grave. But because Jesus has risen, he is the first fruits, the promise that all who believe in him will get up out of those graves and live with him forever. That is the hope of Jesus Christ. And so what Solomon didn't know was the end of the story. And I think in light of the end of the story, then, what we know is that we can find meaning and significance when we place our small stories into God's giant story. To say, the way my life has meaning and significance now is that it points to the story of God in Jesus Christ, that I reflect His nature, I reflect His love and His kindness, and His truthfulness, so that all of those around have an opportunity to see who God is, and the kind of God we serve, and have an opportunity to hear that death is not the end of the story. And so my little story doesn't have any significance on its own. It has significance as a testimony to the story of Jesus Christ. So that my work, my marriage, and my parenting... And everything I do has meaning and significance when it points to him. Philip Yancey, in his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, said, The Christian story insists that history is in lurches and detours, moving to a resolution. Every spark of beauty, worth, and meaning that we experience in this strange existence glimmers as a relic of of a good world that still bears marks, of its original design. Every twinge of pain, anxiety, cruelty, and injustice is a relic of the fall away from that design. And every demonstration of love, justice, peace, and compassion is a movement toward its ultimate redemption. Every demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ is a movement toward the redemption of God's world in which there will be no more death, Crying, pain, or suffering, but all who are in him will worship him forever. And if you do not yet have that meaning and significance locked in, if you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the message ultimately of Ecclesiastes is that is where life and meaning is found, when we trust that Jesus died take away our sin and rose again to defeat death that is the consequence of sin. And one day he will return and all who know him will be in him forever. And for those who know him, our lives exist to point to that story. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And so the the men are going to begin getting ready as I wrap up here. Communion is an opportunity for us to remember how God in Jesus Christ reconciled the world to himself, and really began the process of redemption. And as we think about our lives as men and women who have been bought by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a couple of questions for us this morning. Do you find your life's meaning in God? As we asked at the beginning of this series, is there something in your life that you would say, I cannot live without, I cannot be happy without, I cannot find meaning without? If so, that thing is likely an idol. But do we point all of our earthly pursuits toward God and find our life's meaning in him? Does your life reflect his character and point toward his kingdom? Do we live with the ever-present sense of his love, of his kindness, of his justice, of his truth and live that out and proclaim the goodness of God? and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear. Do we find our life's meaning in God or in the things of the earth? Does our life reflect His character and point toward His kingdom? As the men come forward, let's reflect on those questions and think about our lives. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray, and then we will close in worship. Father, we are grateful for the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, who we remember this morning. Uh, Many of us, as we... Here from Ecclesiastes are convicted this morning that we're trying to find our life's purpose in things that will never satisfy. We're placing the weight of our lives on money or career or pleasure or wisdom. And Father, we pray that we would place all the weight of our lives on you and find the meaning of our story in the grander meaning of yours. We thank you for this time and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.